And we're excited to see what God's gonna do this weekend in the lives of every single one of us as we continue to lean into this series, Then Sings My Soul. In this series, we're, we're talking about worship. It's something that we do every single week as we gather. We worship and we dive into God's word. Yet sometimes, worship goes without an explanation. And so many people gather with skepticism or sometimes curiosity or even disdain or confusion as they take a, a glance or they maybe experience what we do and what we call as worship. So in this series, it's, it's really honing our understanding. What does it mean to be an individual who fully and truly worships God with all that we are? And what does it mean for us as a church to be a house of worship? And I said in week one, worship early on was a, it was a challenge for me. And I find that in some degree, it, it still is something that comes with discomfort and, and I'm still growing in my own journey with Christ in terms of worship. One thing that I, I hate about being a pastor is it seems to always be the case that before I ever bring anything through the pulpit, God has to run it through my house. It's a terrible thing. If I'm ever gonna preach on marriage, it just seems like God's gonna test my marriage and make me put it into practice before I preach it. And so here I am kicking off a series on worship. And then last week, myself, Kristen, Pastor Steve and Sandy, along with 45 others, went to Israel. And we were in the Holy Lands, and it was amazing. But here was the challenge. Pastor Jason Pongratz, our executive pastor, and his wife, Shannon, were designated on this trip to lead us in worship. Basically what happens is, is you go to all these iconic spaces and there's these just beautiful chapels built on different spaces in the Holy Lands and then you gather as a group and you take a moment to worship God and, and they were designated to be our team's worship leaders. And then a couple weeks before the trip, Shannon Pongratz had a scare and had a negative doctor's report and then to God be the glory, an incredible miracle in which God showed up. And can we just celebrate God still doing miracles? <laughs> Can't go into all the details, it's their story to tell and I believe at some point every single one of us is gonna get to hear more all about what God did in their life. But what it meant is they didn't get to go on the trip. And so I get a text from Pastor Steve, five days before we are going to Israel and he says, hey, how do you feel about leading worship in Israel? To which I responded, not good, I've never led worship. <laughs> to which he didn't even respond. <laughs> this man's still pulling rank on me. <laughs> so I get this, you know, list of songs and Kristen, I tell her, I say, babe, Pastor Steve wants me to lead worship in Israel. And she goes, you are going to ruin the trip. <laughs> it's all right. Everyone needs an honest spouse. But it's amazing. You get out there into these spaces and it, you're, you're going into all these rooms or chapels or cathedrals and you're in line behind other groups. And what is so precious about the experience is you get to hear worship in all kinds of languages. And so you stand there and and one group goes before you and they sing it in their native language. Then the next group goes before you and they sing it in their native language. And it had me thinking of that movie, Sister Act 2. Come on, any fans of Sister Act 2? Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg and that, 
that group of ragamuffins, that ragtag group of kids, I felt like that was us. We're at this choir competition and everybody is slaying the number. And then our group gets up there and I'm like the bashful kid, oh, happy day, right? It was terrible. Only problem was that I didn't have the high note in me. And so I was botching worship in the Holy Lands. In fact, I was loathing it. I was like, I cannot believe this. I can't do this. Here I am, a pastor, doing a series on worship, now in the Holy Land, standing where Jesus stood, and I couldn't lead worship. I was so uncomfortable, and luckily, we had a, a lady in our group by the name of Chris Obris. In fact, she attends our Westfield campus, and, and she stepped up, and she started helping me lead worship. In fact, she kicked me to the curb, and she just took the reins, and she did a fantastic job, and at the end there, we're, we're in this garden near a tomb that represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And man, did we slay the final number. It was, it was incredible. And we sang this song, How Great Thou Art, and then sings my soul. And, and it was amazing. And I don't know where you are in terms of worship, and chances are maybe you can relate to my experience that this idea of gathering together and singing out and being vulnerable in a public space with others as you express your adoration to God, maybe it comes with some discomfort. I get that. But I also am fully aware of the catalyst that it can serve and you know, be in your life. And so my prayer, as every single one of us leans into these conversations, that we assess, Lord, am I truly adoring you? And am I truly expressing my love for you and my gratitude for you to the best of my ability? I don't know about you, but maybe you can relate to this as a parent. I find that I try in many ways, much of my strategy as a parent is to help my kids avoid experiencing things I had to go through. Anyone else, that's kind of what you do. You, you think of the pain or the trials or the inconvenient circumstances that you had to endure as a child and you think to yourself, my goodness, I pray my kids don't have to go through what I went through. And so you kind of develop this strategy of helping them sidestep and avoid those things. But deep inside, don't we all know that as much as we want our kids to be able to sidestep those situations, Deep inside, we all know it was those very situations that shaped us and formed us, and we wouldn't be who we are today had we not gone through those things. I want them to be able to get around it, but I know the necessity of moments like that. I say that because I feel a very similar tension as a pastor. I wish I could build Christians. I wish I could build Christians without pushing them in worship, without pushing them to get out of their comfort zone and without pushing them to, to sing out in a public space and, and without pushing them to really fully surrender it all to God. I wish I could build a Christian without pushing them to fully understand and participate in a life of worship. But what we find is you simply can't. You cannot build a Christian and not harness a life of worship. And so in this series, that's, that's the goal. It's help us understand this isn't for our entertainment, this is for our engagement. And every single week we gather, it is a holy moment. God, what do you seek to do 
in our lives, amen? amen. You know, as we gather, we, we jump into God's word. If you're new to Northridge, you should know I'm an absolute Bible geek, and that's what you're gonna get from me every single week. I'm gonna give you a ton of content. We're gonna jump into God's word, and I'm gonna empty myself out. I can't guarantee to fill your cup up, but I promise to pour mine out. And in it, we're gonna lean into what God says and his principles, and we're gonna develop a theology that supports our faith. But know this, when it comes to theology, the goal of theology is not knowledge. It's not so that you can become some Bible juggernaut. It's not so that you can become a know-it-all. It certainly isn't so you can win a bunch of arguments or impress people with your knowledge. That's not the goal of theology. The goal of theology is worship. The more you understand God, the more you can't help but worship him. There's something that rises up in your soul that you think, my goodness, he deserves all my love and all my adoration because in ways I can't explain and in ways I'll never understand, he gave all his love to me. It only seems right that I give it back to him in return. And know this, as we're talking about worship, what matters most is not how you express it. This is important. It's to whom you address it. It's showing up week in and week out and living every single day understanding the God you serve. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he is sovereign and he is noble and he is royal and he is righteous and he is holy and he is seated on the throne high and lifted up in full control and we have anchored our hope and we have anchored our identity and we have anchored all that we are to him. And to him be the glory, and to him be the honor, and to him be the desires of our life. That's what worship is. However that looks in your life, that's what worship is. And what you'll find is though there are a lot of different expressions, no matter what tradition you come from, it doesn't matter if you're Lutheran, Catholic, Baptist, charismatic, non-denomination, Methodist, it doesn't matter. Every single group agrees Worship is critical. Worship is critical. You know, I tend to be an old soul, and I like old music, and I like old preachers. People always ask me, hey, who are your favorite preachers? And to be honest with you, I really don't listen to a lot of sermons, but I read a ton of sermons. My favorite preacher is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon lived in the mid-1800s, and he uh, was a Baptist preacher in England. In fact, he was so ahead of his time and so eloquent with his words and he, and he spoke with an authority and he was just a brilliant man that they called him the Prince of Preachers. I love this man. I read much of his sermons and once he said this. He says, some go to church to laugh and talk. Some go there to meet a friend. Some go there to meet a lover. Can I get an amen from all my single folks? Some go there, a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod, which I'm not offended, but I can see you. <laughs> dozing off and sleeping. But the wise, but the wise go there to worship God. I'm telling you, the wisest thing you can do when you show up to a space like this is to dial in to the God that we serve. Today we're gonna to look at something that happens in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul has arrived on the scene and now he is participating in the work of God, which is amazing because he starts out as an adversary and he eventually becomes an advocate. 
which will happen in some of your lives as well. Some of you showing up suspicious and resistant and just you wait, this God will get a hold of your life and before you know it, you start participating and partnering with him in his redemptive work in the world. That's what happened for the Apostle Paul. And Paul begins his ministry and his mission and early on, he faces resistance and hardship. I find that where the Lord leads you, the enemy will meet you. And the birthmark of a Christian is a target. There's, there's always an opposition. There's always trials that come in our direction. And Paul discovers this firsthand. Nonetheless, he stays to the course. What we find is him and a man by the name of Silas and Luke who's writing the, the book of Acts, they're making their way from region to region. And check out this passage in Acts chapter 16. It says, once we were going to the place of prayer and we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days and I love this statement, finally, Paul became so annoyed. I mean, come on, church, have you ever been so annoyed? I mean, Paul had had enough. He became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. I mean, come on, church, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is so much power in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. Is that true? It's a false accusation. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in and attacked against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. I mean, this is solitary confinement. This is maximum security. He put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. I mean, that's a pretty bad day. That is a bad day. It's hard to read this without welling up in emotion because just this past week, we got to stand in the very prison cell that they held Jesus in. It was amazing. And so you get to see the conditions and how dark and, and painful these spaces were. Paul and Silas are beaten with rods, they're flogged severely, they're stripped of their clothing, and then they are thrown into a dark prison cell, and their feet are fastened in shackles. This is a bad day. And it's interesting to me because it begins with Paul's annoyance. Paul had had enough. And what was Paul annoyed with? Was he annoyed with this girl? No. In fact, what this girl was doing was actually promoting his ministry. She didn't say anything that was untruthful. Hey, these men represent the most high God and they are telling you the way to be saved. Technically, what she was saying was true. You could say that she was a, a PR person. She was promoting the ministry. 
What Paul was irritated with was the spirit of bondage that was on her life and the fact that there were some crooked men behind the scenes who were exploiting her for their own personal wealth and he had had enough. You ever find that a righteous indignation rises up in you at times? Rooted in conviction, you look at your circumstances or you you look at the status of our world or, or maybe you look at the conditions of a loved one and you just find yourself annoyed. Enough is enough. God, I can't sit back and watch this any longer. I'm gonna begin praying and believing for this individual's deliverance. And what you find is Paul, Paul knew the risk he was taking. I have, I've had enough and, and I am going to set this girl free. But her deliverance means my inconvenience. I mean, he delivers this girl and she's set free and he's thrown into a prison. Her deliverance for his inconvenience. Church, I I just wonder what it would look like if you and I, as individuals of faith who have anchored our hope to Jesus Christ, if we would develop the same type of resolve. I am okay with the inconvenience that comes my way if it means other people get to experience deliverance and freedom in Christ. He's had enough. And I don't know about you and what it looks like in your life, but I find at times it welling up in me, enough is enough. Enough is enough. This is why I so badly want to always be a church that is unyielding and aggressive in our pursuit of the next generation. Church, they face things we've never faced. We live in an age of acceleration and the things bombarding our children are pervasive and destructive. And culture is relentless in their pursuit of hijacking our children's purity, their identity, and their purpose. And I just think as a church, we rise up. Hey, enough is enough. Enough is enough. But when you take a stand like that, especially in the world that we're living in, that comes with some inconvenience. And so they are shackled. And my question for you is, if you were in that moment, what would your response be? I mean, what would you do in the agony and the darkness of this situation? This is what Paul and Silas do. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, does that catch anyone by surprise? They have just had a terrible day. And here they are in a dark cell, feet shackled, bruised, and in agony. And they begin to sing songs of praise. My goodness, this flies in the face of the American church, doesn't it? Because we can't, We can't worship if the conditions aren't perfect. I mean, it has to be a song we know where we have the lyrics memorized. The volume has to be loud enough to where my neighbor can't hear me sing, but low enough to where I can hear myself. Lighting has to be on point. Has to be dim lit. But I need the the show to spark some inspiration. 
Musical talent has to be terrific, and the bass has to hit, right? I mean, we're so spoiled in our worship, and if the conditions aren't perfect, we can't worship. But Paul and Silas, they just had a a different resolve. They lived with a posture of gratitude and faith at all times. No matter what I'm facing, no matter what I'm going through, I understand who my God is and he's good and he's faithful and he has a plan for my life. And so I'm gonna worship him at all times because I'm not just giving him lip service. I'm giving him life service. So wherever he has me, I'm giving him my all. I mean, what would it look like if you and I developed that type of posture? But what I think with Paul and Silas that is inspiring, it's certainly a standard for you and I to aim for, is they just didn't worship when they felt like it. Church, worship is something that requires effort at times. In fact, I would say this, worship, it's an act of will. It's sometimes driving a stake in the ground saying, nope, I am not going to fall to my circumstances. I'm going to rise to my standards. Come on, church, what would happen if we rose to our standards rather than fall into our circumstances? No, I know that I know the God that I serve. It's an act of will, it's something you choose to do. Church, we don't sing, or we don't worship because it's fun to sing. We worship because he's strong to save. That's why we worship. It's an act of will, it's saying in this moment I'm choosing to give my adoration to him. And in this moment, I'm guessing they had some questions and I'm guessing some of you, you find yourself in situations of trial or inconvenience where you have some questions with God. And I think something that trips us up in a lot of relationships, not just our relationship with God, is when we don't understand someone's conduct, we start to attack their character. I mean, that's a quick way to disrupt your marriage. That's a quick way to disrupt your family. And that is certainly a a quick way to disrupt your relationship with God. Just because you don't understand someone's conduct, don't be quick to attack their character. I would say this. When you can't trace the hand of God, you must trace the heart of God. In this moment, I don't know what God is doing. But I know he's faithful. I know he has my best interest in mind. I know he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know that his grace is sufficient. I know that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is always with me. I know that I know that my God is good. And so even though I cannot trace the hand of God in this moment, I'm gonna trace the heart of God. He is a good God. And sometimes you have to, yeah. Appreciate the 13 of you being on board with me. (laughs) Sometimes you have to remind your soul of who your God is. Church, that's worship. Worship is reminding your soul of who your God is. Because I think a lot of people struggle with spiritual amnesia. I mean, this is something you see all throughout scripture. Individuals who had experienced God do wonderful things, getting down the road and suddenly forgetting all that God had done. And my question for you is, have you lost sight of God's goodness in your past? 
I think to to live a life for Christ comes with an open-ended perspective. I am fully aware of his goodness in my past, and I fully anticipate his goodness in my future. It's an open-ended perspective. But chances are, God's been better to you than you realize. And chances are, the, the source of your faith would well up if you were to develop a better understanding of his track record in your life. Too many people have a, a spiritual amnesia. And so they have an inappropriate or inaccurate perspective. And Paul and Silas, they, they just had a different perspective. They knew, hey, in this moment, though we may seem like we're down to nothing, our God is always up to something. Church, when you are down to nothing, our God is always up to something. He's always active. And he is weaving his redemptive plan in and through our lives. And, and he is faithful to his word that says he works all things together for the good of those who trust him and are called by his name. Church, he works all things together for the good of those who trust him and are called by his name. It's a different perspective. I mean, you really have two options here. You can either view your God through the lens of your problems, or you can view your problems through the lens of your God. I mean, the first is a victim's mindset, but the latter is a victor's mindset. Greater is he that's within me than he that's within the world. Whatever comes against me, I'm rising up in faith because I know my God is good. I know my God is good. And church, here's the deal. How we view things is how we do things. How we view things is how we do things. What your perspective is, it shapes your activity. They understood, hey, God must have a reason for us to be in this prison. So we're just gonna trust them. You ever considered your perspective? A lot of us were, were too limited in our perspective. I think our world is limited in perspective. A lot of times when we think of perspective, the only option we ever consider is a bird's eye view, which is funny to me. Everyone's like, hey, you know, sometimes you just gotta get a bird's eye view. And I'm sometimes thinking, well, what about an ant's eye view? I mean, some of these national leaders would do well if they would consider an ant's eye view, not just a bird's eye view. Can I get an amen? amen. Or what about a, a fish eye view? Come on, church, this is deep. <laughs> because we tend to make land assumptions about water circumstances. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You have people in your life who have some bold opinions about something they've never been immersed in. Church, it's, it's different. How we view things is how we do things. Our Savior didn't come to get in people's face. He came to get in their shoes. And he became like us so we could possibly become like him. How we view things is how we do things. He's good, he's faithful, he's righteous, he's holy, and he's on my side. So I'm rising up in faith despite what comes my way because he deserves my full adoration. What I love about worship, church, is you cannot worship and worry at the same time. I mean, try it. 
don't know about you, but I sometimes have my own bouts with anxiety. But what I find is it is impossible for me to hone in on the goodness of our God and to articulate his grandeur in my life while pondering my circumstances and my problems. You cannot worship and worry at the same time. You know, I've shared this tension with you before, and I'm gonna keep preaching about it until God delivers our household. But my kids are picky eaters. You can pray for us, because this is an issue. And Kristen and I find that there are things that we enjoy that we are trying to introduce these foods to our children, and they just don't like it. And we find ourselves saying to them, just you wait. At some point, you're really going to enjoy this food. When I was a kid, I was just like you. I was picky as well. But over time, I started appreciating some avocados, right? <laughs> when you grow up, you're gonna like this. Some of you, you're new to the faith. But I'm telling you, as you grow in stature and you grow up, you're gonna begin to appreciate what worship can do in your life. Suddenly, you're gonna have a longing for it and a desire, wait a second, something wells up in me. And this worship, it's a catalyst in my life with Christ. And so they are worshiping in a cell because I think their perspective was the conditions are perfect. You see, here's something that is interesting to me. We believe in miracles, don't we? Do you believe in a miracle, church? Do you believe God is still in the business of doing miracles at all of our campuses? Our God is a miracle-working God. What is interesting about that is we say we believe in miracles, yet we run from problems. Church, you'll never find a miracle apart from a mess. You'll never find a miracle apart from a mess. And so what happens is the situations arise in life that position us to experience our theology. I believe my God is able, and I believe he is willing, and I believe he is faithful and good and on my side, but the miracle-working God is limited because of our retreat when life comes our way. And so sometimes it's welling up and recognizing my worship is a weapon that I get to fight back in a world that's trying to sabotage my life. And I get to rise up in faith, and I get to experience all that God is able to do in and through my life. So watch how this ends. It says, suddenly... There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. I love this. Some of you, you showed up and you didn't participate in worship, but you're gonna be set free because someone else's faith next to you. My goodness, some of you, you have parents who believe this God, serve this God, adore this God, and God is working in your life because you have a praying mother and a praying father. I mean, your faith has the impact on other people. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer, I love this statement, called for lights. I mean, slow down when you read the Bible. Pay attention to the details. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is amazing because if I'm Paul and Silas and I'm in prison 
and suddenly an earthquake takes place and the shackles come off my feet and the doors wide, swing wide open. I'm thinking, that's a sign. <laughs> Prison break, I'm out. Come on, anyone else, like you are marching out of that door with some swagger, like my God is good. Like that's what I'm doing. Paul didn't leave. He's like, God put us in here for a reason. And my only assumption is it's for that guy right there. So here this guy is about to kill himself because he knows that would have been the punishment. And he knows it'll be less painful if he does it himself than to allow his authorities to do it. And Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And what does the jailer do? What was the statement? He called for lights. Why'd he call for lights? So he could get a better look at what was going on. My goodness, I, I pray that some of you who showed up with some disdain and some skepticism, maybe some confusion, maybe you're turned off by the church, but you sense something is happening around you. I pray that I pray you call for some lights. Lord, would you help me see better and more clearly what is happening around me? God, would you help me understand what has taken place in this moment? Would you call? for lights. Listen, I pray that when you show up, you don't just pay attention to what is happening on the platform, but you pay attention to what is happening in the rows around you. I'm telling you, if you call for lights, you will see and you will witness and you will gain a broader understanding of God's work and his goodness and his activity by witnessing what he's doing in the lives of other people. Have you ever found that you can get to know your friends better when you hang out with your friends while they're hanging out with their friends. Let me unpack this. I have a buddy, Dwayne, and he is my closest friend from high school. I mean, we have all these really bizarre interactions that we had before we met Christ, and you know, and so we go back to our junior year of high school and through college and all the wild experiences that we had. And most of our inside jokes are pretty immature, and most of our memories are pretty bizarre and, and foolish, but that is our relationship. Dwayne is my age, yet he's still single, but he did just get engaged, and you know, we're happy for him because homeboy needed a wife, right? <laughs> and, uh, but much of our relationship is rooted in our upbringing together. And so when we get together, we clown around about these past moments. Well, one of my other best friends is a guy by the name of Brian. And Brian's in his 70s. And this man is just, he's the gold standard. You know, he is such a, a value add to my life. He built an incredible business. He has a wonderful marriage. He raised remarkable children. And so every time I'm with him, we're, we're talking about life and careers and, and marriage and children. Things I don't ever talk about with Dwayne because that's not part of our relationship. But if I were to hang out with Brian and Dwayne at the same time, well, Brian would probably be intrigued by my relationship with Dwayne. Man, this, there's an immature side to this guy. There's some goofiness to this guy. I think if Dwayne were to hang out with me while hanging out with Brian, he'd say, man, this, he really cares about his career and his marriage and his children and he cares deeply about wisdom and this mentorship in his life. 
Because you understand your friends better when you get to know your friends' friends. Are you tracking with me? Church, the same happens when we gather as a church. You understand your father better when you get to hang out with him and his other children. Yeah, because maybe you didn't walk through a painful divorce, but now you get to see what God does in the life of an individual who has. Or maybe you haven't battled an addiction, but now you get to see what God does in the life of somebody who has. Or maybe you didn't have the doctor walk into your room and say, it's cancer. But now you get to see what God does in the life of an individual who has. Or maybe you haven't had to file a company for bankruptcy. But now you get to see what God does in the life of an individual who has had to walk those roads. And as we gather, this is the importance of corporate worship. It stretches our understanding of God's versatility and how broad his grace is and how grand his love for all of us is that it wells up. This God is so amazing. I didn't even know he did those type of things. That's not my experience, but now that I see that it's theirs, my understanding of who he is, it's growing. And so what happens is, is Paul begins to minister to this man. I mean, the shackles come off their feet. And my prayer is, those of you who feel bound by something in life, that you will feel the freedom and the liberty that comes through an experience with God as you lean into your own personal life of worship. You have to develop your own ministry to combat your own personal misery. You just can't carry a pastor around in your back pocket. If you don't have your own personal disciplines to say, hey, I know how to combat these things. That's why we worship. My prayer is that these songs get stuck in your head. You ever had a song stuck in your head? It's like, I just can't get that one out. That's what I love about that song. If I know one thing, my God is a deliverer. If I know one thing, my God will see us through. I I love that. And so watch what happens in closing. It says, they replied to him, about being saved, the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Now check out this statement. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Now this is amazing, because he was about to commit suicide because he thought they got away free. And now in this moment, he's participating in their escape. What you find is he's coming under a new authority. Hey, I was afraid of this. But now that I see what this God can do, mm -mm, my allegiance is shifting. He goes from wanting to commit suicide to now wanting to participate. And some of you, it's time that you come under a new authority. And so it says, uh uh-oh. The jailer took them and washed their wounds. This is amazing to me. And then immediately he and all his house were baptized. This is so interesting. When all is said and done, the demon-possessed girl is set free. The jailer and his entire house are saved and baptized. And Paul and Silas are healed. And who is the instrument of healing in their life? the jailer. No one's seen that coming. 
you can't even predict it. If you try to get out ahead of God trying to predict his activity in your life, you're gonna be inaccurate. But Paul and Silas just knew God's got this. Church, sometimes you just gotta learn to say this. God's got this. I don't know how he's gonna do it. I mean, they, they didn't predict a, an earthquake. They didn't see this jailer as being the one who would nurse their wounds, but God did. And I'm guaranteeing there are some surprising options in your life that you're not considering, but God is aware of. He's got this. He's got this. And so whatever you're facing, cancer, maybe it is a trial within your marriage, or maybe it's the anxiety or the depression that bombards you daily, or maybe you just didn't get accepted to the college of your dreams, or or maybe you just got laid off, or maybe you have a child that just made some really poor decisions, or maybe you just can't beat the addiction. He's got this. Church, he's got this. He's a good God. He's faithful and he is committed to do whatever it takes to redeem and to save and to set every single one of us free from the things that come our way. It's gonna catch you by surprise. It's not gonna be according to your preferences. But he's got this. He's so good. That's why we worship That's why we worship, to elevate our understanding of who our God is, to remind our soul of who our God is, and to position ourselves for more of his activity in our life. So your feet may be bound by shackles, but they can't shackle your mouth. So you sing out with praise. God, I believe you're gonna heal my marriage. I believe you're gonna redeem my child. God, I believe you are going to provide in ways I don't understand. God, I believe you're gonna heal my physical body. God, I believe you're gonna touch our nation. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. And there may be some shackles on my feet, but there is a praise within my mouth that declares the goodness of our God and the faithfulness of our God. And he's for us, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's worship. It is a weapon. And so the next time you find yourself in a trial, The next time you find yourself in darkness and in pain, my prayer is you think to yourself, the conditions are perfect for God to do something in my life.